Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 88, recorded on November 21st of 2019, uh, the Photo Geekery podcast, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I just, this is my favorite hour of the week. I dig through all the, of the news stories uh, throughout the week, just as I normally would. I pick out the best, geekiest stories, and I share them with my guest host, my co-pilot, and uh, this week... Uh, I have somebody really special in the co-pilot chair, a man that I have respected his opinions on technology for a very long time. He probably knows how to use a spudger with his eyes closed. Um, this uh, this is a first time that I've had him on the show, and I actually didn't uh, check to see how to pronounce his last name. I hope I do it right. This is Roger Sakala. Roger, That was you? perfect. Perfect. Uh, Roger, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, people might not recognize you by name, but maybe of where you work at lensrentals.com. Um, and it's not just like the best uh, lens rental company in the United States, but uh, and cameras and all that. It's also a source of knowledge and you tear stuff apart. I love reading your teardowns of things because it's there is the most beautiful kind of self-deprecating humor in there. Um, alongside just everything from UV filter transmission charts and just anything that you want to know that's technical about photography, Roger has probably come across it. So he's a great person to have on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. This is cool. Uh, so, I mean, I kind of gave an elevator pitch from my perspective uh, on on where you're coming to photography and everything else from. But uh, what makes you like the Roger Sakala that uh, that we know and love? I mean, how did you get into this, first of all? But um, but why are you so keen and technical and always very curious about technology? Well, my background is I was a research physician, basically doing medical scientific studies and that kind of thing. Photography was my hobby. I taught at a university and uh, started the imaging department in the uh, in the biology department there, and got into imaging more and more. And started lens rentals as kind of a side thing, as an excuse to buy more gear, <laughs> like everybody wants, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, if I have a company, then it won't sound so bad that I've got forty two lenses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, and I know our, our listeners are laughing uh, and maybe looking sheepishly if their spouse is sitting in the car next to them as they're driving, because <laughs> that thought has come across all of our minds. Right. So uh, funny thing, I, I bought like a $50 website, put my stuff up. The next week I was calling a friend going, can I borrow a camera and a lens? I've got to shoot today. And he goes, where's all your stuff? And I was like, I rented it. It was all gone. So <laughs> it took off from there. It became a full-time thing for me in about a year. And uh, one of the things that happens is when you rent equipment, somebody will call and say, well, you know, this lens is bad. I'd look at it and test it. Go, no, it's, it's fine. Or I would talk to Canon and say, this lens you sent me back is bad. And they'd say it's fine. So I got into the testing part of stuff. And, and you I have some of the best it. testing equipment out there. You know, I've, yeah. I've seen your lab or at least photos of it. Yeah, I've got about a million and a half dollars worth of testing equipment, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but, more uh, so than I think. Yeah, I, I remember it was I was talking to Canon Professional Services here in Canada, and I was talking to them about a lens. This was years ago, um, and they said, "Well, yeah, we we can test it, but we can't test it in Canada. We'd have to send it to the U.S. or to Japan because we don't have the equipment to do that here." But Roger, you sir have uh, have pretty well anything that uh, anybody would want uh, to, to test. Not just, and this is useful too, not just modern equipment, but. I I would love like um, to see MTF charts from like antiquated optics. Just and I know you've done some of that stuff before. We too. have. It's just, it, it, it's, it's really fun, fun to see, right? Because when they were designed, there was none of this testing equipment available. And and how does it stack up by the numbers? Is kind of fun to look at. It, it's really amazing. We we've we've done that with uh, lenses 150 years old, which is wow. kind of cool. Yeah, you know, I, the oldest lens that I use on a regular basis is a is a Leica Stemar, which is a circa 1954 stereo 3D uh, full frame uh, lens designed for the Leica M rangefinders, and uh, really sharp for what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. just because the lens is old doesn't mean that it's incapable of producing decent results with modern camera equipment. And especially if you get an f4 or f5 six lens from back in the day, it's as sharp as what you can get today. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that, that statement right there, that is fuel for the internet fire. Uh, the <laughs> trolls would be all over something like that. So let's, uh, let's dig into the stories for the day. Uh, and I picked stories that I thought that you would uh, be able to opine well on. Uh, story number one is, uh, this has been back and forth. There's been rumors of Olympus 
shuttering its camera division. Uh, and then staunch, uh, um, uh, I guess, uh, feedback from uh, from Olympus saying, no, absolutely not. This is not going to happen in any way, shape or form. And then uh, as of two days ago, there was news saying that Olympus may cut jobs in an aggressive push to increase margins, saying that every option, including sale, is also on the table for the imaging business. So th the photography business, by and large, has been on a bit of a downturn in terms of sales. Um, maybe it's because people are just waiting to jump into a new platform. We've had a lot of them launch within the, uh, within the last year. Or maybe it's just time that some people get out of that particular business. I know Panasonic, uh, who's a sponsor of mine, and I shoot with their equipment all the time, they made the uh, the expansion into mm -hmm. uh, uh, full frame cameras, which I love, and they're still uh, producing exceptional equipment on the Micro Four Thirds side, and there's no reason why they're not going to continue along for that. Um, but Olympus is in a bit of an interesting place because they are, you know, solidly staying in the Micro Four Thirds uh, environment, and they've done a lot of innovation there with the um, uh, OMD EM1X. They really need to rename these things. Um, what are your thoughts about Olympus as a company, Micro Four Thirds as a platform, and if there is really uh, trouble in the water for Olympus? Well, I think the, the big thing is we won't make this decision logically from the outside. We can't assess what Olympus is thinking because the imaging division is a hobby business firm. Yeah, it's not. I mean, medical imaging is maybe a little bit more on the nose. Yeah, they, their but medical imaging is is their big thing, and they've got some other things that go on. But you know, it, they if they see even as a money loser, this is good advertising. It's a good presentation for us. That would keep them going forever. Yet that's the kind of thing that I could see changing in one board meeting. And what we think of Olympus will have nothing to do with it. Right. Um, now it's interesting though, because a lot of the, the equipment that Olympus creates, um, in terms of cameras, they could be repurposed in some way for the medical imaging uh, division, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not like Olympus is designing every component of the cameras, right? They're, they're not making the sensors themselves. I mean, they're purchasing those from somebody else. So that R and D that goes into it isn't really on Olympus's plate that they have to try and get a better return on the investment from. Not at all. And I, I think take it one step further. They really do some innovative things in cameras, which I'm sure are influenced inside the company, whether they're outsourcing with a directive or whatever. But we don't know what they're doing with lenses. And uh, these days, lenses are being, they've, they've gone from being tree branches to kind of a, a hedge. They're all enmeshed. So nobody could tell me, uh, I can't tell you, is Olympus actually designing their own lenses? Are they outsourcing design? Are they outsourcing production? Who's putting in? We don't know. So it gives them a lot of options, which is a positive thing. They could probably run Olympus imaging on a pretty much shoestring of internal people outsourcing. Uh, and, and as I say, one day they might come in and go, you know what? This is not doing it for us. It's not bringing us the PR that we think it should. And Let's close our, our shop and go home. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you were right on the nose when you said that uh, Olympus's bread and butter is not this division of their of their market. And uh, Samsung did this a couple of years ago. They yeah. had the uh, a lot of people really like the uh, the NEX cameras. I uh, owned one. I loved it. <laughs> and I mean, it's still a good camera today, albeit it's uh, as outdated as its contemporaries. But mm -hmm. uh, it was. Uh, it wasn't making money. I'm not sure if it was like if they were hemorrhaging money, but Samsung saw that there are just so many competitors in this space right now. Um, the attention and the investment required in order to gain market share uh, would be risky. And it wasn't a risk that they were willing to take. So they just completely left the market. Now, I don't know who else is going to do that. But if you if you see how many lens mounts, how many systems, not just manufacturers, but how many systems are on the market right now, I think it's a peak that I don't think we've had this many different platforms to choose from as a photographic consumer, unless, of course, you, you know, we're uh, uh, back in uh, like the Soviet era where they would make knockoffs of everything. Right. And that was technically a different platform. But um, where do the other players stand? I mean, how much how, how many sales is Rico Pentax actually bringing to the table for their SLR market as well? Right. It can't just be Olympus that's thinking about selling. Well, I think Rico's always had that because they're actually a much bigger company. 
Oh, and they do photocopiers and like yeah. office equipment and, and their like photo that. division. I think therefore is a smaller percentage of the company. I, and I don't know what, you know, it, it's just how, the, how do they think of this? Do they think of it as, Oh, it's so insignificant. It brings us a little publicity. It's no cost to keep it running. And then someone changes on the board or a new president comes in and goes, why are we doing this at all? I don't know what's going to happen. The other thing that would make me nervous if I was, uh, I don't know what the word proper word would be because you can't say fanboy. If I was very invested in Olympus, Panasonic has got to be looking away from Micro Four Thirds to some large extent. They've made a big investment in a new mount. Well, they have, but that doesn't mean that they would completely disregard the existing infrastructure that they've built in the Micro Four Thirds platform. It doesn't, um, and but it, it might mean that they don't invest much more in it, or that they're. You know, invest, investment in R&D is a fixed amount. Every company's got, this is your R&D budget. If we're putting our R&D somewhere else, did we get a bigger budget or did we steal from the other stuff? Right. Well, and Panasonic too is is a huge company. They, they make yeah. everything. In fact, I was on a, on a flight recently and I paid for internet access with my PayPal account. And the, uh, the, the byline in my PayPal payments said Panasonic Aviation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so they made the Wi-Fi module in the airplane. I mean, they're everywhere doing everything. Um, and Olympus, I, I'm not sure exactly how diverse their portfolio is, but when you see the big players like Panasonic and Sony, um, and uh, I, I guess Nikon does have some uh, additional imaging products, and so does Canon. Too, Canon makes yeah. printers and everything else. They all have different markets. However, Canon and Nikon, the their bread and butter, I think, is sort of the other other way around, where it's the camera division that is making a ton of money for them. Um, but if they don't reinvent that and, uh, you know, people like Panasonic, Sony, and others are going to eat their lunch. And if everybody out there, Nikon's the one that the camera division is a big, big portion of what they Canon's maybe a third, 25%. Everybody else, it's an afterthought. Uh, even as big as Sony's gotten, it's still an afterthought of Sony Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. And if for whatever reason they, it, it, it tanks or the market just takes a turn and it's no longer profitable, then they can shed that if there's no sign that it's going to be coming back. So that kind of leaves us feeling like we're being held hostage as photographers. Uh, I mean, do you choose your camera brand based on um, how likely the manufacturer is to never let it go? I mean, is that a choice that we have to make? I think it's a consideration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I right now it's an interesting place. I do not own a camera system. Okay? <laughs> well, well, technically you own hundreds well, yes, of them. But I'm talking about my own personal, and I always have had one. And I decided earlier this year that I would change systems, uh, which I do free. I've spent eight months, and I can't decide what to buy. Really, that's interesting. Okay, uh, so what what is the main analysis paralysis that's stopping you from from making a decision? Well, I have an overall view that mirrorless is the future. So I plan on I don't on think going anybody's going to dispute that, except okay. maybe Pentax. I don't mean SLRs will disappear, but I think that everybody's R&D is going towards mirrorless. So I wanted to go that. I'm kind of disappointed in the Nikon lens thing so far. There's I'm no platform that's mature in the mirrorless, aside from Sony. But I mean... I, I, I was never a fan of, oh, what do you think about this, uh, Roger? When you look at the, uh, the Sony lens mount, do you think that when they designed that, they ever had any intention of pulling a, uh, putting a full-frame sensor inside of that? I think when they decided to do a full-frame sensor, it, I think we often give the camera companies credit for more thinking than they did. <laughs> yeah. And I think they went, we've got a mount, we can put a full-frame sensor behind it, and they moved along. Yeah, because um, this, uh, the, the Canon EOS M mount, uh, which Canon only has uh, APS-C-sized sensors within, yeah. is technically a millimeter wider than the Sony mount. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean they can't make good lenses, but it means it's harder to make good lenses. Yeah. Um, I, I thought the Canon lens line was more interesting. I don't think their cameras are that great. I'm fascinated by the consortium, the Leica Sigma Panasonic consortium. If for no other reason than there's... A, Right now, a bunch of good lenses available. Yeah, I haven't fallen in love with any of the cameras yet. So I sit here doing nothing. <laughs> well, I guess you got to wait for one more generation of cameras to come out from all of them and reevaluate when that I, time comes. I think that's it. And do I think any of those companies are going to be gone in five years? No. But 
I'm a gearhead. So if you tell me, for example, my company hasn't released a lens in two years, I'm going to be sad. Yeah. Well, and there's third parties for every platform more now so than uh, we've had in the past with a lot of mechanical lenses with modern lens mounts and uh, and everything else. I mean, even the uh, resurgence of uh, Meyer Optic, uh, now owned by OPC Optics after their bankruptcy, um, they're reinventing the Trio Plan 100 lens again. Uh, and making it for all of the, uh, the, the, the new full frame mirrorless mounts. So, um, with, with that in mind, uh, let's move on to the next story because I think we've kind of talked that one to to death, but let's talk about lenses. And this is an interesting story. Uh, I was, uh, recently in Calgary and, uh, we did a a great shoot with, uh, Jordan Drake and, and Chris Nichols for, uh, DP review TV. And he had an anamorphic lens and was testing out a, uh, a Panasonic, the 24 to 70 uh, Lumix uh, S lens, which had very little focus breathing. And it was uh, a point of interest, especially for cinematographers. And we've talked about cinema lenses before, but you're an expert in, uh, in a lot of this stuff. And you've had your hands on, on quite a bit of it. Uh, so I found an article on F-Stoppers published this week uh, titled simply, What is a Parfocal Lens and Why Is It So Important? And moreover, that translates as to why are cinema lenses coveted by cinematographers and have a heavy price to pay? And I think there's three or four main ingredients that go into that. So, Roger, I'm going to throw this to you. Um, what are parfocal lenses? Why should we care, even if we're not shooting video? And what are the other advantages of having a cinema lens versus a regular stills lens? Well, as a still photographer, there aren't many advantages to a cinema lens, except you get to pay a lot more and you know have the envy of your peers. But the parfocal thing is, is really interesting. Parfocal means I can zoom from, let's say, it's 70 to 200, and it stays in focus the whole time. And as people like to do, people love to be black and white, yes and no, and they want to go, is this lens parfocal or not? And my answer always is, it depends. And it's a sliding scale, right? It I is. mean, it. Uh, just like uh, telecentricity in microscope objectives, uh, you don't necessarily have to be 100% in order for it to be as effective as you need. Right. And nobody else that I ever mentioned that to would ever be able to nod and say, yes, you're speaking my language. <laughs> Isn't this great? And the three people who <laughs> nodded along with us at home, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the parfocal thing is, is it parfocal enough is the question. And the enough depends on what aperture you're shooting at, what sensor size you're shooting. Uh, if it's not a designed parfocal lens, it depends on the copy. It was very interesting because we had somebody who, screamed at us that such and such lens is parfocal. So we took 20 of them and we put them on the machine where I'm measuring focus in microns. And we found that three of them were indeed parfocal. 17 were not. There's copy, wow. to copy. But these were not designed parfocal lenses. They're photo lenses. Right. So I had this man who's going, I know it's parfocal. I shot one before and it was. That one was. This one's not. It's not designed that way. Some of them happen to be. And we found, you know, I do optical adjustment of lenses in, in, stu- in our house, in our in a lens rentals, uh, repair department. We can adjust a lens for better optics and find that we've altered the curvature of the field or we've altered the parfocalness in doing so. So you've got all these trade-offs in a photo lens. But a lot of lenses that were parfocal when everybody was shooting micro four-thirds are not parfocal on 8K full frame. It's a different thing. They're not parfocal enough. The cinema lenses have built-in compensators, mechanical, usually extra elements, what we would think of as a floating element, but for a different purpose, that help keep it parfocal. But even then, when we get a cinema lens and it gives us the repair criteria for us to do different things in-house, it tells us how parfocal it should be. It's not perfect. It's this parfocal. And that's for stills lenses. Now, if you get into the cinema world, and a lens is genuinely designed to be parfocal. Um, that's, I mean, as I mentioned, that's a coveted feature for cinematographers. Uh, but are they all, are cinema lenses all parfocal as they claim to be? Uh, sort of the opposite of stills lenses not claiming it, and some of them are. Uh, is, it, is the opposite true? Well, that's what I was talking about before. That even the cinema lenses have a standard of parfocalness that may or right. may not be perfect. And, and again, we have to go back to when they're designed. For instance, one of my favorite cinema lenses is the Zeiss 70 to 200. Uh, they call it a lightweight zoom. It's only like eight pounds. Uh, only eight pounds. Yeah, you know, cinema lightweight. 
But it was designed a long time ago when sensors were small and resolution was low, and it's par focal. Not perfectly today on 8K full frame. Yeah, if you really, I mean, we can pixel peep now more so than ever before. Right. Uh, and at 8K, it might not hold up to, you know, all of the perfect standards where it was rock solid at 1080p. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, I'm actually writing an article today about it, but the depth of field, everybody got their depth of field calculators and they go, the depth of field is 17 feet at this. It's, it's at a frequency. If that frequency is higher, the resolution is higher. The depth of field is lower. So what is a depth of field at 20 line pairs of resolution is not even close at 50 line pairs. 8K resolves 50 line pairs. Right. And 1080p resolves 12. It all comes down to, you know, the the, the circles of confusion and exactly how much you're actually going to have in focus when you are looking at the critical sharpness. And critical sharpness is a sliding scale. Exactly. So. And, and it's also a judgment scale on, on the part of the cinematographer sometimes. But what was par focal when we shot 1080p may not be par focal at 4K, probably isn't par focal at 8K, despite all the adjustments. Right. Um, and if you wanted an 8K par focal lens, that's where you're adding zeros to things in order to afford it. Yes. And, and in some cases, I mean, you're talking about, oh, you'll have to have the $80,000 Airy. That's what you're going to have to shoot. Yeah. If you want that. Um, so even among cinematographers, we think all of their lenses are expensive, but they have gradations of expensive themselves. Well, exactly. You know, I, I don't, I don't know of anybody that, uh, you know, personally has gone and purchased like a, a Leica Noctilux, uh, at whatever five digit price tag it has Mm -hmm. associated with it these days. And you're not buying, uh, modern, uh, equipment. You're, you're buying a lens that was a niche novelty designed to not block the rangefinder. Uh, lens on a rangefinder, and it has all sorts of compromises, and you're still paying a ridiculous price tag uh, yeah. for a lens that doesn't really necessarily show you many advantages. So before we move on, um, parfocal and, and why that's important is key. But do you have a favorite cinema lens besides like the the Zeiss seventy to two hundred? Is there like a, a brand that does it better than anybody else? Any up and comers that are worth mentioning? Well, uh, on the primes, I really like the Sigmas. Sigmas just basically rebadge their photo lenses for cinema. Mm-hmm. But then cinematographers, even more than photographers, poo-poo sharpness. But again, we've got 8K now. And a lot of cinema lenses are not designed to be sharp. and Not bringing out what 8K has to offer. Even 4K. The Sigmas are really sharp, and I think they're a great set of lenses. Great to know. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm sure that a uh, little bit of advice will make people look seriously at, uh, at Sigma. I've been a fan of, of their lenses, regardless of, uh, of the purpose for them for quite some time, especially when they rolled out their art series lenses, which, uh, really, um, I, I don't want to say they're better than the competition, but they're certainly cheaper. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, if it's kind of laws of diminishing returns, and I think we'll, we'll get to that, I think in, in, in our final story, but. If we talk about more exotic lenses, and I love when this stuff comes across my, uh, across my newsfeed, um, from Petapixel, Canon has patented crazy lenses, an 18mm f1.0 lens, and uh, at least two ultra-wide-angle f1.2 lenses, um, and uh, a 16mm f1.4 in the mix as well. And, okay, so patents. Patents don't mean it's going to become something. Uh, if you want to secure an optical formula to be your own, you have to patent it, and then nobody else can use that exact same formula. Um, so it might be stopping the competition from, uh, you know, producing something the same or similar. But these numbers just don't seem to make any sense to me. I mean, it, is this lens going to weigh half the weight of my car, 18 millimeters at f1.0? It just seems ridiculous. And yet we see the numbers, we see the diagrams. Um, I guess I, I want to ask uh, your opinion on the validity of such patents ever becoming actual products. And then to piggyback on that idea, um, what is the most exotic lens that you've had the joy of taking apart? Well, the, I want to ask the last, last one first. The most exotic <laughs> lens I've had the joy of taking apart and putting together is one that uh, we designed, which is the 270-degree fisheye. Oh, I saw that. Frame. I'm envious of that one. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, Nikon had their six millimeter fisheye uh, yeah. from way back, and there's like twelve copies floating around in the world right and now. This is a four point five. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. So 
And, and it's even more ridiculous to see if I put it in front of my head, you can't see me. I mean, it's bigger than my head. Um, so that's the most exotic one I've ever done. Have you like? Do you sell these or just rent them? We are. We we've made four prototypes. We've got them out being used now, and have decided to make it into production. So they will be sold at some day, not at what we would consider an affordable price. I wouldn't imagine so. Not more than a car, um, but but there. Um, the most interesting thing I ever took apart was uh, I bought a 150 year old rapid rectilinear lens that John Dahlmeyer was. And Aaron and I took it apart in a clean room to clean it and found that Dahlmeyer had signed the edge of every lens element pencil. Oh, wow. And apparently in his shop, that was the way that they said it's been passed as they signed the edge in pencil. So that was the coolest thing I ever saw taking a lens apart. Well, and uh, that's kind of a, a guaranteed proof right there that it's an authentic original. Yeah, it was really cool. So what was the other thing we were going to talk about? I'm oh, about the validity of some of these patents. I mean, uh, I know exotic lenses can be made, but how are these going to exist? Probably not, although I will never say never. If they are, it's going to be like the Nikon 58095, a trophy lens that will be more, you know, to brag about. But there's two reasons you get these patents. One is sometimes you get a lens designer who wants to prove he can do something on paper. And that's enough. And they count coup like any other, you know, egocentric people do. It's like, uh, I, I, I work thought with, about that angle. Well, I work with Brian Caldwell a lot. And he's the one who designed this fisheye. You know, he'll, he'll he, bring he also designed um, Metabone uh, Speed Boosters. Uh, uh, and the Coastal Optics 60 millimeter. Exactly. Uh, so so brilliant ones. guy. And one thing I learned with Brian is uh, it's not often this is the case. But in this one case, I am the voice of reason. <laughs> Because okay. Brian will bring stuff and he's like a kid and he's grinning and he's triumphant. And he, one design he brought me was something that was an F0.666 something. I don't even remember what. And he goes, That's a devilish number. That's what he said. He said, So we've got the lens of the beast. And I'm like, Brian, this thing is going to be three feet long, two feet in diameter. It's ridiculous. Nobody can make it. And he's, but, but I designed it and he's so proud. So I think you get that kind of thing. Somebody, making a name for themselves, some young designer pulls this out. The other part that's really true is patents are there for the competition. And the obvious reason is so they can't make it. Yeah. But the other thing, and, and, and Brandon uh, that I work with quite a bit is famous for knowing this. Every patent of a lens ever made has an error in it. On oh, do tell. If I patent this lens out and I do one lens element wrong. I give you a mistake and you go copy it in a Chinese factory. It looks like crap. Oh, right. It's like a trap street on a map, right? Right. You know, the capacitor trap story. Don't you? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, it, I mean, I'm, I'm going all the way back to like uh, antiquity and cartography, where if somebody copied a map directly verbatim from yours, you would put um, a uh, a street that didn't exist on your yes. map. And if, if that was on the, the reproduction from somebody else and they claim that they didn't copy it, they copied the trap that right. then kind of caught them red-handed. So you get two ways this works. One is the, I put this mistake in there so you can't just copy my patent, which is known to happen. The other is, let's say I want to patent this one type of aspheric element, but I don't want you to know where I'm going to use it. I could include it in this ridiculous patent. Right. And so then it would be patented by virtue of it being included in this overarching patent. Uh, and then you don't know where that's going to show up somewhere else. No. So perhaps there's some ratio of, of lens elements that's critical here. And you could use it to make an 18.0.9. You might also use it to make a 135 F2O. But you don't want right. anybody to know you're working on that design. So there's, the patents are, are there and they're interesting. And they can be anything from, we didn't really give a darn, but Joe wanted to patent it, to uh, we want to make sure the other company thinks we're going left and we're going right. It's, it's a whole big game. It is. And I hadn't thought about a lot of those angles. So I've got the right guy on the, uh, uh, on the call here to talk about it. In terms of the lenses that we are going to see from Canon, okay, even if it's not going to be these ones, uh, what would you like to see from them? Um, in the, uh, the new RF mount, because, you know, they, they need to make waves, right? They need to fill yeah. out a portfolio. Sure. They need to get the, the standard stuff that everybody is going to go for. I often think that a, a platform that 
is the most appealing is the one that covers the most niches. Even if you're not going to go into them uh, mm -hmm. as a photographer, just to see that, yeah, I could go in all of these different directions. It's available for me if I start my journey here uh, into this direction. Um, Canon, I mean, I, I use the, uh, the MPE 65 millimeter lens, uh, quite reliably for a lot of my macro work. And there's been nobody else that has made a high magnification, at least variable magnification macro lens. And that lens came out in the 1990s. I mean, right. My copy is a little, little newer, but those niche products, I think really make a platform feel mature. So how will Canon get back to that level of maturity with their new mount? Well, I think, I think one of the first things is going to have to be native super telephoto. Right. So, and, and that I think would be the easiest to adapt, right? Because you and don't really have to. that's kind of Canon's thing. They've always been the super telephoto lens maker. Right. And maybe, maybe roll back out a 1200 millimeter just for, just for the fun of it to have that halo lens that they might sell eight copies of. Yeah. Um, but it's not to sell. It's just to say, okay, well, we're capable of this. We're waving our flag. Uh, they did this when they came out with the EF mount, when they came out with the 50 millimeter F1.0 right. lens, which was a useless lens. It was just a marketing uh, gimmick because they knew that Nikon could only ever make F1.4 when they made it digital because of the way they put the contacts in the lens, right? And so mm -hmm. it's a back and forth play amongst these different manufacturers. But yeah, those super telephotos, I think, should be here sooner rather than later. I think so. And I, I suspect um, one thing that really fascinated me with Canon is their new R mount 70 to 200, 2.8. And why was that a fascination factor for you? Because it's so short. And so that, that has to do with um, the, the and did they put diffractive optics in there? I know that no. they've got a ton of patents and stuff on that. No, and it's as heavy as their regular one. So I think the glass is close to the same, but it's half the length of what I think of as a standard 70, 200, 2.8. And a long time ago, they, had some engineers visiting us and one of the engineers to kind of grinned and went, here's your non-disclosure of the day. Now it's been shown so I can talk about it. He set that on my desk and I looked at it and I looked at him and I said, that's going to sell an awful lot of cameras. And he went, absolutely. And I, well, I don't know if it has yet necessarily because the cameras themselves are, are not illustrious enough. Uh, they're not, not selling yet. none of them, mind you, but uh, I think that they need to have that killer camera body. Yeah, um, just to get people to start trickling into that platform. I think that's true of everybody that started a new mount. But I think it's it's what we're seeing is the Canon way. We're going to make lenses that are so good, and we're going to make a lens set that's so good that you'll still yeah. buy our camera even if it's not any better. Right now, I don't think it's even as good. But if it if it gets to be competitive, they'll have great lenses. So I I think the telephotos there. A 135, I think, is, is, is an attractive lens right now because everybody's made one except Canon. What do you think about the, uh, the Canon tech for, um, uh, for the, the soft focus bokeh uh, control? I think in their 85 millimeter lens that uh, I don't know if it's on the market yet, but they were putting some pretty interesting technology into that in order to just, you know, yeah, you're going to lose light in the process. Right. But, um, you know, you've got so much light coming in that you really, especially with uh, higher sensitivities that are perfectly usable and image stabilization technology that Canon doesn't have on the sensor yet, but I'm sure they will eventually. Um, losing those stops of light isn't critical, I think, to most people shooting. Um, but the effect, have you had your hands on one of those lenses yet? I have not. So I find the concepts fascinating, but I have no practical experience whatsoever. Okay, well... Uh, uh, I will, uh, I'm, I'm going to wait until you do. And then your opinion is the opinion that I'm going to care the most about when, uh, when the time comes. Um, all right, let's go on to our next story, Roger. Um, Sigma's, uh, this is from Petapixel, Sigma's 24 to 70 millimeter F2.8 art lens for the E-mount is half the price of Sony's version. Now, right. a, a lot of times we're uh, talking about uh, you know, value propositions in photography. I mean, there's, uh, you could spend twice as much, but you're not going to get twice as much in terms of quality. And you can spend twice as much of that and you might only get 5% better. And you can add a zero to the price tag of that one and get 1% better still. Um, so Sigma's art lenses have been heralded by many as being a marked improvement over their uh, more traditional lenses. They just put a little bit more elbow grease, blood, sweat, and tears into the design and uh, offer a slightly higher price tag for them. But 
I mean, if you're going to be buying a workhorse bread and butter lens that you are going to be using day in and day out as a photographer, a 24 to 70 is likely it. Um, would you would you compromise on getting a Sigma art lens if it's going to be that critical to who you are as a photographer? I know many wedding photographers, photojournalists, street photographers, they, they all love this range. I prefer something a little bit longer. I love a 24 to 105. Um, but, uh, you've got the, uh, the hands-on experience with probably both of these lenses, or at least the Sigma lens in a different mount, because I'm right. not sure if the E-mount one is available yet. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, as you said, I, I haven't tested E-mount, but the design appears to be the same as the 2470 Sigma for other mount. Right. That is a good lens. Um, I think when I first reviewed it, I said, if it didn't have art on the side, I'd say it was really good, but it does, and it's not as good as what I expected. So it's it doesn't stack up to the other art lenses then? Like it doesn't kind of no. hit the same? What, what I think of art, I think of a lens where they've said, we're going to make it optically awesome and reasonably priced, and that's going to make it big, and we're okay with that. That's not what they did with the 2470. They made an okay lens, and it's probably the difference between designing zooms and designing primes. Zooms are hard to design. It's well, yeah, a good the, the optics that go into a, a wide-angle lens are fundamentally different than the optics that would go into a telephoto lens. And so when I see like an 18 to 300 millimeter lens, I just do a face palm and I'm like, just don't, don't even look at that. Don't, yeah, <laughs> that's not that's, worth your time. Well, they say delusions of adequacy. Right. You know? But 2470 is a hard design because it's retrofocus at 24 and it's telephoto right. at 70. It's easier to design a 7200. It's easier to design in some ways a 1635. It doesn't have to change as much. So one thing about all 2470s is they have a bad end. Most of them, it's the 70. Interesting. The Sigma is a little different, and it seems to be weakest at 24. So one of the things I would think about in this choice is, let's say I'm a Sony shooter. Do I have something that I like at 24? Maybe I've got a 1635. Right. Uh, then, and then you could cover that range, right? And I cover that 24 range, then the Sigma is more attractive. Right. If I don't, if it's going to be my always on my camera lens, the Sony's better. Is it awesomely better? Yeah, it's better. Well, and to be honest, you can't go and buy a bad lens. Yeah. Really, honestly, compared to what we had uh, historically. If you take a bad picture with any of these lenses, I mean, that's on you. That, that's not the equipment's failure there. And, and I think the, the problem with zooms that I see bad pictures is people want to do everything with a zoom. And a zoom is a compromise. Yeah. It, it uh, does everything okay. And you know what? It, if it allows you to take the picture because yeah. you're not fumbling around with gear or you just don't want to carry all of those extra lenses with you, um, the exactly. convenience factor is a very fair compromise. And I completely understand why people want a nice travel zoom because it'll allow you to, to get the shot. Yeah, well, it might not it. be as perfect as if you had a 24 millimeter prime, which uh, I still have a, a Canon 24 prime that I, I, it, it, I don't know, uh, I might be buried with that lens. I don't mm -hmm. use it that often, but it's just, it's something that they did it right and I never have to, to do it again. Uh, but most of us don't want to take six primes on vacation. True enough. So I think there's a place <laughs> for it. And I don't know that, uh, you know, everybody's got a limited budget. I've got a limited budget. Would I rather have an okay zoom and a really nice prime or a good zoom? Well, I, no question to me. I'll take the okay zoom and a really nice prime. Right. Right. Now, um, I, I got to ask before we go uh, on to picks of the week and, and everything else, um, you have handled pretty well um, every camera and every lens. I, I, I'm not saying blanketly everything, but more so than most people have had across their desk. Um, what is the best designed lens that you have seen? that is within a consumer uh, non-automobile styled budget? The, the lens I am most likely to say this is totally worth the money is probably going to be an F1.8 Prime, uh, the really? Tamron F1.8 Primes. They're cheap. They're better at 1.8 than your zoom lens would be at 2.8. They're not quite a 1.4, but they're a third the price. And in most places, most things you shoot, you can get good 1.8s at several focal lengths. That would be right, my yeah, little yeah, pocket 35, lens. 35, 50. Uh, 85 usually. 85, yeah. yeah. So that's the kind of lens that, you know, when we talk about it, if I was taking something to slip in my pocket, 
that's the lens every time. And there's so many of them that are really good. Nikon, Canon, Tamron. Yeah. Well, and we're going to, I think that I'm, uh, I'm not going to steal your thunder, but that might be something close to what a pick of the week is for you, although maybe a step up. Uh, before we get to the picks of the week, though, um, I know we said it right from the top. Uh, Roger, uh, we can find you at lensrentals.com. Uh, but like, are, are you on social media? I, I love your Lens Rentals blog, too. Plug whatever you'd like to. I am um, not, other than my blog, I, I'm on Facebook and kind of on Instagram. You know, I'm old, so I'm on Facebook. Um, I, I tend to to basically be about humor if I'm not about photography. So, I'm, oh, and I'm I encourage anybody to read some of uh, Roger's uh, teardowns of camera bodies and lenses. There's little hidden gems of comedy in every one of them. You you got to laugh at this stuff. You really do. Um, and you said self-deprecating humor. I, the thought that flashed across me is because I've been deprecated so many times. We. We don't we don't write about the ones we took apart and can't put back together. <laughs> well, you should. Oh, you should do like a wall of shame. Oh, oh I would read that article one. in a heartbeat. <laughs> we have a long one. Um, my favorite is Aaron, who does most of the hands on now. We talked about micro four thirds earlier. There's some micro four thirds pancake lenses. And the first time we went to disassemble one of those, we did not realize they all had a spring. So the motor drives the focusing element one way and the spring pushes it back. So Aaron got a little cocky, took out four screws, did something else, took off the bayonet, and the entire lens assembly sprung up, hit the ceiling, and scattered to the We couldn't even find all the pieces when it was done. That I, I mean, I would have loved to see a video of that happen, but the expression on Aaron's face. Um, if it, Were you there in the room at the time? Oh, yeah. We were sitting across from each other with a lens <laughs> in the middle of us, and I screamed like a schoolgirl. I didn't know what had happened. <laughs> you know, never seen anything oh, yeah. fly out of a lens before. That's hilarious. Hilarious. Um, okay. So uh, lensrentals.com and especially the Lens Rentals blog, because that's where you find, well, maybe not that story specifically, but a lot of really good content that is written incredibly well. That's not just information. It's oftentimes entertainment. And, uh, and I, I sit back uh, in my morning and I, I, I look and I just hope there's something new posted there. Well, thank you. Uh, okay. So let's get into the picks of the week. Uh, I'll go first. It was one that I was using just prior to uh, recording, uh, and I, I gave uh, Roger a sneak peek at, at a photo that I was working on um, using a, um, a platypod and some of their gooseneck arms that they have now uh, attached to some little Lytra torches uh, as a lighting system to illuminate macro photography. And I've been using this for a little while. Uh, I've used LED flashlights, and, and they tend to, uh, to, to work nicely. Sometimes they'll have a wider or narrower beam, but they're usually pretty directional. These little torches are pretty diffuse, and so that can work really nicely for macro photography. Um, but uh, Platypod just put up a, um, uh, a Black Friday bundle. So you can get a Platypod Max, two torches, four goosenecks, uh, and um, the, uh, the diffusers for the, uh, the lights and everything else. Normally $339. They've got it on for $279 right now. Um, yeah, you can put all this stuff together yourself. Uh, and probably pay more for it. Uh, you can use your own LED flashlights and crab clamps, which I have used for quite a long time as well. But if you want just like, um, I called it a, a macro base of operations, where you can just construct a scene right in front of you and build anything that you'd like. Uh, really, your creativity as, a, uh, as an artist, not even as a photographer, is the barrier to entry there. Because with you know good light, good close light, it's really bright. Um, you can do... Well, it, you won't have your technical limitations to deal with. Um, and the shot that I, I'll put it in the show notes, the shot that I was working on, uh, uh, uses the, the wonderful feature in the Lumix S1R. It's also in the S1, the G9, the Sony uh, A7R4. These high resolution modes have the ability to you know, quadruple the resolution of your image. And I've been using that for macro photography, not because I need the resolution, but because I can throw it away because I can get further away from my subject and crop in excessively to dramatically increase my depth of field such that I don't need focus stacking in every scenario anymore. Um, it's not a magic bullet per se. I mean, you can't be shooting at uh, even F16. Diffraction is going to blur the heck out of things. You have to loosen up on your aperture a little bit, probably not shoot uh, any, uh, any smaller than F11. And, uh, but this kit, this less than $300 kit gives you everything that you need aside from your subject. Uh, all of the lighting, everything else in order to make things work. So the Platypod uh, Max Macro Bundle, 
The link to that will be in the show notes. And I'll put uh, the photo that I just took with that today uh, in there as well. So you can see what that's all about. Uh, they've been making some great stuff for uh, it, as soon as they came out with those goosenecks. I just realized, okay, this is the perfect platform for macro photographers in studio, especially it's the wintertime and it's cold. So that is uh, that is my pick. Uh, before we get to your pick, Roger, um, what's your opinion of the um, high resolution modes on all the cameras I mentioned and then some more in terms of uh, how lenses survive that? Because I know a lot of people will be using that and they'll be dialing it into F16, F22, and then they just complain because nothing is sharp in the end results. Yeah, I, I think most lenses, you're going to have your system maximum sharpness at about F5, 6, and probably F8 you can get away with. You're going to start to see some diffraction softening at F11, and that's not, you know, overcomable, but you, you got to realize there's a point of diminishing returns. Uh, you know, and it, it, as, as you say, focus stacking, kind of a pain, but sometimes it's the only way to do it. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, I looking at the manual for that to Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens, they actually have a chart in there that calculates your effective aperture versus the one that you dial in on your camera. And as you mm -hmm. get closer and closer, your effective aperture actually gets smaller. Um, you know, there's a complicated equation that uses both the magnification factor and the pupil distance of the lens. Um, but if you want to just keep it simple, effectively, just the ballpark uh, back of a napkin idea, adding one stop, for every magnification factor you have will give you an approximation as to what your effective aperture would be. But if I'm at five to one magnification and F16, that chart shows that I'm actually shooting at F96. Right. Um, and you're not going to get anything sharp at that point <laughs> ever. Uh, you might get a megapixel worth of resolution if you're really crossing your fingers and hoping. Well, and I don't have anything like the abilities you have in macro photography. But the one thing I do know about is the answer is usually more light. Yeah, uh, either more light or less depth of field in terms yeah. of using a microscope objective instead of using a camera lens if you're getting into that realm. And you can get a one-to-one -one magnification microscope objective. I mean, that's not an unheard mm -hmm. of thing. Um, and uh, I'll actually be writing about that in my, my new book on macro photography coming out in Q1 of 2020, how you can do all of that wonderful stuff. Um, awesome. But if we're talking lenses, um, I think that is your pick of the week based on the email you sent me, unless you've changed it at the last minute. No, not that I'm not you know likely to do that, but the the Tamron thirty five one four is my lens of the week. Although it's really from a month ago, I tend to really do this because when I write about anything I'm testing, the first thing I do is here were my expectations going in, and my expectations on every Tamron is the same. It's going to be a really decent lens at a really good price. Blah blah blah. It's I, I love their 90 millimeter for macro. And, exactly. And, and it's, it's well built, it's light, and it's inexpensive. And, and so that's what I went in. Well, here's a 35 one It's going to be a good lens. It's obviously at a good price. $900 is a lot of money for a lens, but for a 35 prime, not that much. And I tested that, and I shot with it, and it is absolutely the best 35 one Really? It's the best. Wow. As far as resolution. Now, I'm not saying handling. And both. But resolution-wise, it, it trumps the Canon. It trumps the Sigma art. It trumps basically everything. And I was shocked. So here's a chance where you go, what's the best 35 is also the cheapest of the 35 14s by a good margin. I mean, the Canon's like 1600. I yeah. think uh, the Zeiss is 1400. And here's this 899 and better lens. And uh, I see it's available for Canon and Nikon. Um, I, are there any other, uh, like, are they doing a mirrorless version of this lens? I'm sure they will, but it's not out yet. Right, um, right. Well, one of the things that it also, I, I, and, and this is, I'm repeating rumor. I, so I can't repeat when I know something because I'm under non-disclosure, but when I hear a rumor. You can parrot that. So let, let's hear it. <laughs> I'll parrot that if I think it's trustworthy. And this is an interesting story. Tamron has for quite a while sold lenses and lens patents to other manufacturers. So I always am, enjoy when, say, a Nikon shooter poo-poos that I'd never shoot a Tamron, only the name brand. That I'm like, I've taken that lens apart. You never seen the inside. I know what's in there, and it's not Nikon. The story is that Tamron designed this lens and went to sell it, and nobody was willing to buy it. Really? So that, that, that's an interesting story. Um... Uh, an interesting bit of hearsay, um, you know, from uh, from the grapevine. And so then Tamron says, OK, well, we've made uh, a, a great lens that 
should achieve a higher price tag, but there's just nobody on the market that would be willing to uh, to to do that. Maybe they already have one. Uh, I think that was it. it. Everybody yeah. says, "Oh, ours is fine. We've got one." Exactly, um, and so then they just kind of you know uh, hang out their, uh, uh, their their own banner and say, "Hey, you know what? We're we're going to st- uh, stamp our own name on it." And it's not like Tamron doesn't have a whole assortment of lenses from every right. focal length. Um, I think historically they've maybe not kept their best one under their brain brand rather. Yeah. So uh, as we say in the South, I think they said, okay, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> and, and now, I mean, as, as soon as this becomes more common knowledge that it is such a good lens in comparison to, uh, to all the competition, I think that's actually going to help their brand equity quite a bit. I think so. And then, then my next question is going to be, maybe they kind of go, maybe it's okay to make our own best lenses. So maybe we'll see some more of this because it's a really good lens. All right. Well, the uh, the Sigma SP 35mm F1.4 DIUSD. I just, the acronym is driving me nuts. But, <laughs> um, uh, no, that, that's, I'm, I'm on the Tamron website right here. And that's, that's what I'm seeing, model F045. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, all right, Tamron takes the cake. Uh, also, thank you very much for that pick, Roger. Uh, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. I, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. You can see the show notes at photogeekweekly.com, and you'll also find the links to Lens Rentals, the Lens Rentals blogs, uh, and anywhere else I can find Roger having a public social media account. <laughs> I will stick those links in there uh, so that you can follow him and uh, give him a pat on the back as he does amazing work, not just you know providing the service of, uh, of renting lenses and cameras and everything else, but for digging deeper than anybody else in the industry to make sure that what we're dealing with is not only, you know, to manufactured specifications, um, but to understand exactly what goes into everything that we use, both cameras and bodies. So, Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was my pleasure, Don. Thank you for having me. All right. And with all of that said, it is time to get out and shoot. Shoot.